This is the Illuminate Podcast, a Sandy Boy production. Each week on the Illuminate Podcast, the hosts will bring you insightful conversations and stories of people who are illuminating their own lives through their business, work, community, family, and world. Hello and welcome to the Illuminate Podcast. I am your host, Emma Benner, and today I'm sharing episode 71 with Farah Nanji. Farah is a DJ, journalist, TEDx speaker, podcast host, and the founder of Regents Racing. As a teenager, Farah was diagnosed with dyspraxia, which is a developmental coordination disorder that affects 5% of the world's population. And in this episode, Farah shares about how she has never settled and allowed dyspraxia to be a weakness of hers as she has gone on to be an entrepreneur in two industries that rely heavily on motor coordination, which are music and motorsport. Farah's business, Regents Racing, is a business that explores leadership lessons from Formula One racing. And she recently launched her podcast, Mission Makers, which is where she interviews people that are involved in music, motorsport, business, and other industries. And in this episode, we get to hear about all that Farah does with her DJ career, her TEDx talk. I really loved hearing about the process of doing that speech and how she launched her podcast and, of course, her business, Regents Racing. We also hear a lot about her experience with dyspraxia growing up and how that's affected her and some of the things that she wants to tell other people that are experiencing this similar things. This episode is so much fun and I love chatting with Farah. But before we get started on this episode, I do want to share about the company Finley's. Finley's is a really cool pet treat company where they have so many fun flavors for your pets to try, but they also give 50% of their profits to initiatives that provide employment training, accessibility, health and wellness, and advocacy platforms for people with disabilities. I really hope you check them out, and if you do, make sure to use code ILLUMINATE20 to get 20% off your order at GetFinleys.com. All right, let's get started with my conversation with Farah Nanji. All right, today on the Illuminate podcast, we have Farah Nanji. Welcome to the show, Farah. Thanks for having me, Emma. Yeah, so you've done a ton of, or you've done a TED Talk before, so an interview like this must feel like so much less pressure. <laughs> um, it is funny without without having uh, that stage. I think the stages and the red dot and just the the knowing that it's on that platform just just sort of uh, you know it kind of it, it scares you a, a little bit. Um, but yeah, no, I'm, I love I love podcasts and uh, and and having conversations. So. Um, hopefully we can have a great, great, great conversation today. Yeah, I want to dive in later in the conversation about the TED Talks. I'm really interested about that process. But first, why don't you introduce yourself and give us a little background to who you are? Yeah, for sure. So um, my name's Farah. I am. Um, for, I was born in, in London in the UK. My roots are um, from East Africa, India and Pakistan. So a bit of a diverse background. And... 
I suppose what I do in, as my professions um, are also pretty pretty uh, unique in themselves. Um, I'd say I'm split between sorry about that. I say I'm split between three industries: um, music as a DJ, music producer, uh, motorsport as a founder of a couple of businesses in the motorsports industry, um, exploring sort of leadership lessons from things like Formula One. And um, and then as a journalist, sort of writing about it um, and just kind of sharing a lot of interesting content. Um, and really all of those three things, they, they came together at different parts of my life, but most importantly, music and motorsport came, came around sort of at the same time and uh, at a very young age. And many, many years later, it kind of led me towards basically making a career out of something I absolutely, uh, absolutely love. Yeah, so your TED Talk is a lot of talking about your diagnosis of dyspraxia and how that has played out in your own life. Do you want to share more about what that specifically is? Yeah, for sure. So um, a lot of times um, people, sometimes when they hear that word, they think that they they mishear and they think that you mean dyslexic because a lot of people know what dyslexia is. So sometimes um, people don't realize that it's actually a completely separate thing, but it is on, it's, it is like a a sort of learning difficulty. Um, And what it is, is um, it's a sort of difficulty with uh, processing um, motor coordination in your brain. So it's actually sending like a delayed signal to the rest of your body. Um, So that affects things like even simple things like using a knife and fork or cutting um, with a scissor or th- um, throwing a ball and and also things like sequencing. So subjects like maths um, can be quite difficult. Um, and actually it, it, it actually affects, you know, about, they say about 5% of the world's population. So that's actually, you know, that's not a small number. Um, and it's, it's kind of like a hidden, sometimes it's a bit of a hidden thing. Like people just think that they are, generally bad at maths or you know um they're clumsy or and things like that but there, there could actually be an underlying reason you know for it um and it's uh and so that's that's yeah I, I got diagnosed with that when I was about 15 and ever since then I've been confronting that head-on and just trying to get better with um with things like my balance and coordination and things what does the journey to being diagnosed look like like what is the process you go through to get that diagnosis at age 15 that's a really good question. So I'm I'm 30 now, and of course, this, the education system in the UK was was very different, you know, 15 years ago. And you know, I was in a really good school, and they didn't detect like anything was wrong with me, even when the signs were like glaringly obvious, even at like the age of like four or five. Um, and it's really interesting because my parents, their family business is in Montessori education, and and we have two schools, and we can actually really, really see like just how evident difficulties in learning things can be in a, in a child and how it can easily um, show show itself um, you know from literally the age of like three so it kind of it kind of didn't go detected for a really long time and and basically because I was in this kind of um, highly pressurized school that the, my teachers sort of thought maybe I was being a rebel maybe I was trying to be difficult because I would be excelling in certain subjects particularly Thing, uh, creative expressive subjects like English um, you know and those kinds of things and history but then when it came to things like chemistry biology math science I, I just I just couldn't the level was completely different you know um, and so they thought you know I'm doing that to be difficult and things like that so it was almost out of like 
I don't want to use the word pity, but it kind of was like, you know, oh, well, maybe you could just get some extra time, you know, maybe it will, maybe it will, you might want to see if it, it, it might help you. Um, and so they just suggested, you know, like go to an educational psychologist to see if you can get any extra time. They didn't actually think that like, they didn't have any idea that like it was a certain thing, like they didn't know that. Um, and I just went to the educational psychologist and, and literally my diagnosis was there and it, and I never really... I never really did anything. I didn't see anyone after that. It was like, I went to this exam. Um, she she worked with me for a whole day and she saw s simple things like, how can you draw a line? Um, how straight do you draw a line? And every time you draw a line straight, if it's not, if it's not like, there are like certain sort of degrees off by which you can tell if somebody, you know, has, um, has a problem. Um, and uh, yeah, so that was kind of the diagnosis. And then, yeah, and then, and then that was it. There wasn't really any sort of like, help after that um because it is quite expensive you know you do have to spend quite a few hundred you know dollars to go and then obviously think about you know what's the therapy and and yeah so that that's that was the journey towards getting diagnosed when you get a diagnosis like that for something like that did was it a relief did you feel understood like what was the overall feeling when you heard that diagnosis at first I mean, I was, you know, I was really in my shell at that age. Um, I was really introverted. So I, I, I almost felt, I don't know, I felt like sort of annoyed that I had this. Mm. Um, but then over the years, I, I realized that like, you know, that, that actually, um, I, I can, I can completely take, take a hold of this, um, particularly because I had already started go-karting and that's where I felt very confused and angry because basically like I knew that within me I was capable of driving really well because like I was getting you know I was I was getting on podiums at some in some car in some races um and you can't have a motor coordination delay um difficulty and then get on a podium I mean it, it, it yeah. there has to be a way that you you're doing something that you, you know that you're doing something that's different that's that's able to like to, to take your like just just able to kind of overcome it a little bit so I felt angry in the beginning because I felt like you know I mean coordination I mean and uh, you know all these things I mean they're 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 linked to so many um career paths so and particularly at that point I wanted motorsport to be my career path as a driver and I felt really annoyed that I I probably am definitely not gonna have a chance of you know getting into Formula One there's just no way you know and so yeah, but then over the years, because I, I decided I'm not going to stop, um, you know, racing because I knew I, I, I wasn't a danger. I wasn't a liability to anybody on the track. I mean, you know, I was I was a good driver. Uh, but I realized that that what I was stalling at was maybe more the advanced learning. And that's where it took me a lot longer, you know, to study things like racing lines, understand, um, you know, the different sort of the different techniques. And I think that by doing those things, like actually confronting it and just trying to study like I, I, I me and my parents always laugh at home because I took maths as a as an AS um, level subject which is like a very much more sort of advanced thing you do in your when you're six, uh, 16 17 in the UK um, and you just and I failed miserably at it but actually what it taught me was just a lot more understanding about those things so I think just those earlier on sort of um, boldness to just kind of still be there and still do those things gave me more of a foundation to to it not affect my life as much as it, it may have done if I hadn't if I just ignored it if I just said you know well that's it then I'm, I'm not gonna 
I'm not going to, you know, do, but you can't escape doing maths. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. you, you've got, it's a core, it's a core subject. Um, and you don't want, you want to get an, you know, an A or, or a B, you know, at worst in, in this school. So, um, yeah. So one of the things that I pulled from your TED talk was when you talked about, you didn't feel understood by your peers, the other students and the teachers. It just felt like when you were going through school, people didn't understand where you were coming from. So I'm curious, if you look back, what do you think that teachers could have done differently or a school in general could implement to help other students that are facing something like you did to help them feel heard, feel understood, and maybe progress as well? I mean that's a, that's a great question and and that's that's that could literally be a you know a podcast on itself. Oh, absolutely! Um, because you know <laughs> the education system is clearly flawed and not just here in the UK, but you know, yeah, everywhere, globally. right? Everywhere, and kids do feel misunderstood, and then they and then they you know there there's so much bullying that's prevalent, and that that can have such a deep psychological impact on people's lives. Um, and I think that in this school where I was, you know, it was this top 10 school in the country. So, you, you know, you, you had to be pretty smart to get in. Um, and I didn't, I just kind of felt like it was a fluke that I got in because two of my cousins um, were at that school and they they went on to become, you know, um, head girl and they went on to go to Oxford and all of this. Um, so in, in a way, I thought maybe it was a fluke I got in. Um, but actually... You know, I think in that particular school, I think, you know, creativity just wasn't encouraged. It was like obsessive performance towards academic mm. um, subjects. And and that's it. So you're not encouraged, you know, to kind of to, to, to learn about healing through music, to learn about the importance of nature. Yeah, you have sports, you know, you do sports. But, you know, was were we really going to forests? Were we really learning how to be empathetic? Were we really, um, you know, those are so important things. And were we really talking about consciousness? Were we, you know, were we kind of, um, what was the, what was I going to say? Um, yeah, there was just so many, so many things they could have done better. I, I think the bullying particularly was something they never, they never took a, a, a ownership of. You know, it was like, well, it just happens in school, and and even, you know, you know, we did, we don't. There, there's not enough consequences there and and, you, in, and there are there are situations that enable people to thrive in those environments um which is really really wrong and um those things you know they need to change but but as i sort of mentioned you know working um well my family kind of running this montessori method uh, school the method towards montessori is absolutely phenomenal because you realize that you know zero to three your brain is literally forming 80 to 90 percent of its it's 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 foundation and everything that you learn in those fundamental early years will literally you know like form how you become as a person how you interact with rejection how you you know how you feel when um you're not heard or how you express yourself and if you're you know what you're exposed to in that environment from your parents to your guardians um how you're treated and 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 it takes so long to um to to take to to take to kind of correct those things if if um if those things are not nurtured from a young age and and what Montessori really does is it it almost it almost you know it, it observes how a child is actually naturally gravitating towards um, a particular activity and that activity will have a sensorial outcome it will have a coordination outcome it will have all these different things 
Um, but you can really see like whether a child is actually having difficulty and that that exposes where there needs to be more work done. And, and that Montessori method, uh, you know, it even exists up till the age of 18 um, in some schools. And I think that in the UK um, and 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 yeah, particularly for the UK, because um, that's obviously my experience is just everything is so put into boxes and you just have to take these boxes to go through and and those real life skills um, are not necessarily related and you have to go and figure it out for yourself. And yeah, I think those are my kind of early thoughts on it. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, there's so many things you could dive into and how to make it change. But I really like your point on how if they don't do something with bullying or helping you along, you could have just given up, you know, but you you talked about earlier how you dove into things that may have been challenging and tried to figure out a way to do them. So that I really want to talk about the Formula One racing. I'm going to be honest. I know nothing about it. So <laughs> I'm really curious about your experience. Have you raced professionally or I, I really don't know anything about it. So I don't know if there's like semi-professional or just like amateur races. How does that all work and, and what's your involvement in it? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, motorsport in general is kind of like, um, it has a similar sort of, uh, let's say, um, it has a similar sort of approach in, in all different parts of the world. So, um, you know, you could go drifting, you could go rallying, you could go go-karting, you could do single-seaters, um, you know, you could do like a Porsche Cup um, sort of race, for example. Um, you could get your own car and start competing against other cars in similar categories. Um, of course, the pinnacle of motorsport is Formula One, um, and that's that's met for many reasons. Um, one is the the engineering perspective. Um, you know, some of the technologies that we see um, on the road today, like even things like carbon fiber, they come from Formula One. Um, you know, these teams are spending upwards of 150 million pounds a season to develop a car, two cars. Um, so the the breakthroughs they have is absolutely phenomenal. Um, and there's even this kind of crazy thing that the, the, the sort of the worst performing car at a race, by the time it gets to the next race two weeks later, will, um, will be very close, you know, to what sort of the mid pack would have been in that previous race, because they're caught like every single minute of the day, there's improvements happening in R and D and performance. Um, so, so that's kind of formula one. Um, and, but to get into formula one is, you know, it's, it's, it's not a joke. Um, you know, there are only 20 seats, um, and those guys, um, are pretty much, you know, devoting their life to this since literally from even the age of four or five, because the path towards racing starts, um, I think universally, like from basically doing go-karting, cause that's what you can kind of do at that age. Um, and then what happens is sort of around you know, you could also do like a bit of, uh, you know, uh, kind of motorbikes as well. But um, in my particular sort of uh, interest, um, I think the around the age of like sort of th uh, 14, you can start kind of getting into single seaters. So you kind of step out of a cart and you go into a closed, um, you know, a real car sort of thing. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's, it's amazing. Um, it's, it, it, I do race. I mean, like, I'm really lucky to run these two, um, companies, which, uh, one is focused around events and really around taking really interesting events. Um, like even things like driving blindfolded with Land Rover, for example, 
um and and getting to you know kind of experience the british countryside and kind of going on really steep terrains and going in deep waters and things like that um and then and i get to you know kind of kind of put those ideas on on uh, and bring them to life um as an experience for for my for my clients um and and then you know we also do things like the drifting school we could learn from like some stunt drivers who were a part of um of um, fast and furious um, so there's so many things you could do with motor racing, like there's so many different, um, you know, types of racing, um, which is why like living in the UK is amazing because you have like, you have like six or seven Formula One teams who are in the UK, you have so many manufacturers um, and automotive companies that are based here. So like this experience with Land Rover, I mean, Land Rover has like 20 or 30 sites in the UK that they use across the country um, to, to run experiences like this with like so much open land um so yeah that's that's kind of my um my foray into it um and i also kind of captain captain a, a karting team as well so i'm i'm always learning about um and, and coaching young drivers particularly in uh in 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 the earlier sort of parts of their journeys how did you initially get into it um it's a good question i think my grandfather he he loved cars. Um, he he like he was watching Formula One. He he did have a really nice classic car himself, um, and it was our Sunday sort of bonding thing. Like I, I would kind of just go in his car, and even my parents they laugh. Like you know, the only way to get you to sleep when you were like a baby was like for us to take you for like long drives. Um, that's literally the only way you'd stop crying and like go to sleep. Um, you know, um, and I think, I think like I just always gravitated towards cars. Something about it just fascinated me. Like I loved the adrenaline. I love the thrill. I love the beauty of a car and the, how it made you feel, the aesthetic. Um, and then of course, you know, the history, learning more about it when I was growing up, the history behind these cars and like the people, you know, what it was like um, 50 to 100 years ago. Um, you know, people died in races. I mean, the, you know, you'd have Formula One races where, it was a regular thing. People just died in a race and, and, and you continued on racing. Whereas from obviously crashes. today, that's a very rare. Yeah, from crashes. Yeah. Um, the safety element, you know, it wasn't something that improved radically until the death of Ed and Senna. Um, and that's when things changed a lot. But you look back at some of the footage, you know, um, and it's just, it's phenomenal. Um, you know, it, it was really the most bold and courageous sport. Um, so... So I kind of just, you know, I, I loved it. It's not a sport that, you know, you can just, it's not like picking up a ball and let's just go and kick a football in the garden. I mean, it's, you have to, you have to like, you have to want to try and figure out how you can get access to it beyond seeing it on the screen. Um, and for me, that was realizing that, you know, karting was, was something you could do. I, I went to someone's birthday party. It was a, it was a go-karting birthday party. And that's when it, it clicked for me and I, I was like, this is just the most amazing thing in the world. Um, I, I had this mind-body experience and I never felt, I, I actually think that was like the day I got into consciousness. Like I suddenly realized where I was and, and, and things. And I was quite, I mean, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't like four or five, but you know, I was just, a, you know, I was around the age of 11. Um, and I, and I, you know, un unfortunately been bullied and stuff. So when I got into that cart, it was just, uh, you just put your helmet on, nobody knows who you are. It's just, yeah, you know, it's just you and that one experience and, and going faster and pushing your limits and taking risks. Um, 
yeah and that's how I got into it yeah interesting so now you've kind of created a career around it and you've created Regents Racing what what is that all about what do you currently do with that Absolutely. So, um, I, I, you know, I knew that, you know, like, especially when I got the diagnosis of dyspraxia, like, you know, Formula One's just not an achievable dream. I mean, you also need to have a lot of money, like just a, a season in, in, in F, F, F3, F2 is like half a million pounds at the age of like 14, 15. Um, mm. You know, it's just not, it's just not, it's not, it's not, um, it's not, it's not um, accessible for most people. Right. Wow. So, um, you know, that's, that's nuts, right? Um, so it's a really, it is an expensive sport. Obviously, when you, when you talk about things that are a bit less like karting and, uh, and just doing a track day, you know, we're not talking hundreds and thousands of pounds. So it's a bit more accessible. But yeah, what does Regents Racing do? So what I sort of saw, what I, um, what I kind of saw, uh, like what I started observing from a young age was really the, the leadership lessons that come from motorsport, because in essence, people who devote their life to motorsport and who go on to become, you know, F1 drivers or, or whatever they are, they, they start really young and they have to be really mature and they have to develop a very, uh, you know, a very mature approach to how they lead other people around them and how they manage their own emotions. Um, you know, the youngest um, driver on the grid could be like 17 or 18 in Formula One. Um, and he's if he has a crash, let's say his front wing gets damaged, which happens can happen quite a lot. I mean, that's two hundred and fifty thousand pounds just wiped off like one 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 wing. You know, I mean, you're responsible for that. You're, you're you've got to you know answer your sponsors. You've got to answer your team principal. Um, you know, there's so many things, and and I, I just observe this this approach to leadership, particularly from like the millennials and like how how things were changing, particularly with technology. And I found it fascinating. And I went to business school um, during uh, you know sort of my university years and. Um, I was lucky enough that a lot of my, a few of my friends there were actually race car drivers and they were competing for um, thing, uh, uh, com- companies like Lamborghini and they were competing in the Dakar rally and things like that. And uh, and I saw this opportunity to like sort of set up a motorsport society because it didn't exist at the time at that university. Um, and it exploded in its, um, in its time there. We got to 800 members. And in a way I was kind of approaching it it wasn't just let's just go on a track it was like let's take the concept of motorsport and let's let's make it really interesting like let's like for example go to a museum where you have like all these amazing cars and let's make an incredible um you know sort of fine dining experience out of it and and get a dj from buddha bar and and you know and then this kind of um, ambience is created and and it, it's a very it's just, it was a very different thing and I, I just I just found myself just just like becoming like such a like I don't know creative with with looking at motorsport in a different way perhaps because I had to look at motorsport in a different way if I wanted to be in that world I mean of course we we're doing road trips and track days as well but it, it, it was you know really trying to find different angles and and it and the, the idea just kind of got picked up really well and people loved it and later on it, it became something that i i didn't want to just leave I just i didn't want to just stop at university from that and um i was really lucky enough um two years ago to start it as a business and really to explore some of those lessons because because the business lessons you can learn from motorsport i mean they can literally be transferred into like any company um any industry any human being um they're all universal principles that you know they're they're things from um, communication managing risk thinking about sustainability, um, digital transformation. I mean, there are so many 
um, core sort of themes and um, commonalities that people can relate to. Um, and so that's that. So that's kind of what Regents Racing Regents Racing is. And it's it's really for a community of people that you know a did go to that university. We still work with that university as well, um, particularly because they have like some really interesting um, young leaders that are are being you know sort of nurtured into being tomorrow's kind of global leaders. Um, but then we also connect them to people outside of the university who are like successful entrepreneurs. Um, so it's kind of like we have uh, people at our events who are like from all different ages, from Gen X, Y, and Z, which is also really interesting. And and then I sort of started a, a second company recently, which is, um, it hasn't been, it's, it's, it's a startup at the moment. We haven't started like um, kind of uh, operating fully yet, but it was to go deeper with that idea. So Regents Racing serves like kind of, you know, uh, members and, and, and individuals, but the Formula Mind is, is all about taking those concepts that I touched upon about communication and those workshops, but actually delivering them to companies and senior teams. What's this new company called? It's called The Formula Mind. Okay, cool. So it has the same focus and it's just with a different age range and everything? Yeah, it's 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 got the same underlying principles, but it goes a little deeper. It's more of a consultancy, you know, Regents oh, okay. Racing is a is more of like, you know, you experience the event once, we'll do like seven experiences or events a year. But for Formula Mind is, you know, is is really like a, a three or four month consultancy process for a company. Um so we can really have a bit more of an impact um than 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 a one day experience. Interesting. What an interesting concept. So is Formula One racing in Europe, is it a very common sport? Can you do it in high school, in university? Like, is it a club sport type thing? Because I just don't feel like that's the way it is around here. Mm, um, it's a great question. I mean, if you want to be a, if you want to get into Formula One, you you move to the UK. Um, you know, okay. you've, you've got all these drivers, even from South Africa, from all different parts of the world, even America, you know, who, who come yeah. and they... They know that the that the home is is here, and that's really because we have as um, you know six six of seven of these F one factories. So uh, the teams are based here. The you know um, some of the manufacturers are based here, and then of course you know um, Europe is so 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 close that you know in one hour or two hours you can be in Germany, you could be you know um, in different parts of Europe where they also have you know phenomenal um, automotive and motorsport companies. Um, is it a school thing? Not really. I mean, as I said, it's not like you, you go to school and, you know, you get, you get a given, you know, do you want to play netball, basketball, hockey, football? Um, you, you don't get that option of karting. It's, it's not, okay, it's yeah. not, it's not there, right? You kind of have to figure that out for yourself. And, and, uh, and that's also a sad thing, but it, it's because it's quite, it is still expensive. I mean, to go for a karting race, I mean, it's, you know, football is, a, is, is almost a free sport. You know, you just buy a ball and you, you go to a, a, yeah. you know, a field. Um, but karting is, you know, you do have to spend sort of between 40 to 50 pounds a session to go, um, even up to a hundred pounds a session to go, um, and, and do it. So, you know, it's, 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 it is a bit more inaccessible in that sense. I guess I didn't catch this in your company, Regions Racing, does it make it more affordable? To be honest, I mean, it's not extortionate, but it isn't, it's not, it, you can't, you can't completely eliminate the barriers. I mean, the costs are there to operate. Like, right. you know, you've got, you've got to pay the suppliers. You've got to, there's a lot of risk. I mean, you know, that that's uh, obviously a huge element of it. So there's yeah. a lot more, you know, there's a lot of organization that, that has to, you need a lot of people on the ground, um, you know, so there are a lot of variables around it. But also just going back to what you were asking about, you know, university. Um, in university, it's it's a little bit more of a, let's say, exposure because mm-hmm. 
you know, engineering is something something that, you know, we have phenomenal um, business schools. I'm oh, sorry, not business schools. We have phenomenal universities like Imperial, Oxford Brooks that, that you know, that have, you know, world-class engineering departments. And to be honest, like all of these universities um, have some sort of a motorsport or automotive or particularly an engineering society. So um, those kind of societies, they do organize, they'll try and organize like, you know, things like a karting day out or a visit to a, um, a factory or something like this. Interesting. It's such a different world. Like I really know nothing about the sport or anything about it in general. So it's just interesting to hear more about it and that you have a big involvement. From what I know, it seems like it's a pretty male-dominated area. Is that kind of what you see in your experience as well? Are you one of the only females doing it, or are there more that we just don't see? Um, absolutely, it's, it is. You know, it is. It is a male-dominated sport. There's, there's no doubt about that. I think in the last couple of years, there's been huge efforts to get more and more females into it. But you know, if we took, if we, if we understand that karting is the the beginning, the the, the early, the the first steps you need to make to that that career path. And then you understand there are only 20 seats at the top and you need, uh, you know, millions of dollars to be at the top. So you've got the first barrier, which is a lot of money. Then you've got the second thing that there's only 20 seats. And then if you think about the fact that they all have to come, you know, from from the funnel of karting, the statistic is that I think only 8% of people who are go-karting at a competitive level um, at that age are female. So the numbers are just stacked against you. I mean... They are really, really sacked. Um, however, there have been people slightly one more generation above me, and even well before me. I mean, there were females, you know, racing. It's not a new concept. Um, you know, you can go back eighty years. You know, people, people were. You can find information about drivers that were actually doing that. Um, but in the last uh, decade or so, um, there have been a couple of really important figures in the in the world of, of Formula One that have championed female involvement and they've really paved the way for others um, and a particular woman is called Susie Wolf um, and she was a developmental driver for the Williams F1 team so that meant that her job was kind of uh, she was in an F1 team you know she was contracted by an F1 team and she was contributing towards the development of the car so wind tunnel testing um, a lot of sim driving taking the car on the track um, but not at a race and um even just getting to that point is a huge, like, it's a huge achievement. And when she retired, she set up a company called Dare to Be Different that recently got acquired by the FIA, which are the sort of governing body of motorsport here in the UK. And that company was all around basically going to schools and introducing the concept of motorsport at a very, very young age and a grassroots level, but also working with like, you know, um, kids who are like 12, 13, 14, 15, and even a bit older than that, because they also might want to get involved in a, a, a career path that they may never have known would have been a career path. Like, you know, you've got the typical obvious ones like marketing and, you know, engineering and, and all that stuff. But then you've also got like really specific things like um, tire tire management or, you know, painting a specific component. Um D developing a steering wheel and what she what she does is is amazing she's i think she's already impacted um 30,000 school children and they've gone to these schools and they've bought you know sort of females that are in formula 1 teams behind the scenes because in one F1 team there are about 800 to 1000 employees um and she'll get some of the women that are in them and and they'll have the most you know niche um 
careers in within that section uh, within that team and 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 she'll and they'll come in and they'll speak and then they'll do activities and and I mean in my day and I'm sure even in 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 for you as well like you would you have ever had that exposure at school to to say that you know the lady who designed Lewis Hamilton's steering wheel just yeah I just touched it you know and I just yeah. saw it and I just had her journey and that's phenomenal um so she's she's really you know done an incredible job um and uh and then recently um there was uh there's been a series specifically just for women and there's almost a sort of counter argument where oh do we really need something that's just a series just for women and unfortunately um you know because we're not quite there yet where an f1 driver is not on the grid who's a female we do need that we do need um that series to be there um and the lady who started that catherine um she, you know she, she said you know i hope this series i hope my this business isn't going to be around in in 10 years time yeah, because there hopefully like won't be a need for it right you know uh, which is really interesting but um the whole series is amazing because they actually you don't have to pay to enter the series so if you're good enough um which obviously means you will have had to make a, a significant investment in your career prior prior to that but if you're good enough you know uh, the, the seat is 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 funded it's sponsored and it's uh it's single seaters and um and they have some really cool people kind of behind the scenes like former f1 drivers like david coulthard um who are sort of on the management sort of side of things as well so yeah so i mean and and those types of things you know they're coming on tv like i remember i was on a plane to dubai a few a couple of years ago and uh and i saw it on the on the in-flight entertainment and um <laughs> that was insane i mean you know it's 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 kind of there if you look for it if you know what i mean thanks for sharing about all of those it's cool to see how exposure for women and exposure for the sport and the different careers in it are being developed there. Mm, absolutely. Okay, so you don't stop at Formula One racing. You're also a DJ. Let's hear about your career with that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. What do you want to know? Like, how did you first get started with that? It seems like a really unique path. And I just want to hear yeah, how someone definitely. gets into that. Yeah, for sure. So again, like, you know, we're talking kind of going back 15 years. Um, where was electronic music at that point in time in the world? Um, and, you know, where was technology also at that point? Um, and for me, I think even just before the age of 15, like my first exposure to, to, to understanding, I think, the fundamental core of, of which is how can music heal people? Um, and that, that, that understanding, um, something that that's the reason I I am a DJ I mean that that reason has never changed you know um when I DJ it's it's really to move a room and to move emotions and to capture an energy and to direct it in a different way and I think my because of the bullying and stuff like I started learning the Spanish guitar when I was seven and I've realized now that learning that it actually was one of the first reasons why I got into DJing because um, the music I play is very Ibiza kind of is a very Ibiza vibe, um, and that has a lot of um, Spanish scales and gypsy sort of scales in its productions. And so yeah, so I think that was when the first kind of like let's say the seed was planted. But also you know more importantly, kind of just escaping my educational surrounding and just kind of being in that room for an hour and learning you know this incredible instrument. Um, and then and then I was like you know I was born in London I grew up here and I was a bit of a rebel and uh, you know I started going out when I was quite young um, you know I, I was about 15 when I started going to clubs and I I know that I wasn't doing it for the wrong reason because I, I went there and like the first club I went to is a place called Fabric which is you know one of the best clubs in the world 
and they literally have a, a sound system that's it's like a it's like a it's a mind body experience because there's there's speakers literally on the dance floor itself like underneath your feet and oh wow yeah there's you know speakers um you know around your ears and everything so you're getting this incredible experience right um and i just remember the first time like the first time i went to that cl- like a club that which was that club and hearing a production on a sound system which is like multi-million pound sound system yeah like it changed my life you know it just changed my life like literally just the sound of a kick drum um and I was just fascinated but also what I was so fascinated about was like well hang on a second like I've just come from this really like close-minded environment like I mean you know the the people that I was surrounded by in school were so close-minded like mm. they you know, they, they, I just thought the world was those four walls. Like I didn't even know like a world existed outside of that. And suddenly you get to this dance floor and there's just complete freedom and liberation and expression and friendliness. Um, and I was just like, I was like overwhelmed. I was just like in awe of the whole experience and it just changed my life. And I, I knew right then and there, like I, that, you know, this isn't just about experiencing music. I, I want to be a part of this somehow. I want to, you know, I was collecting music obsessively already by that point because the internet had come out. um, I, like, already started downloading so many things, like even Buddha Bar, like, you know, compilations from there. um, So many different just forms of electronic music. And so, yeah, I think um, what what happened was it's not an easy... Even today, you know, how do you just become a DJ? I think today there are easier paths because... The internet has allowed there to be, you know, um, number one keynote discussions, which you can just literally Google on YouTube about it. So there's so much high level thought kind of being shared, which wasn't shared, you know, back then. Um, DJs definitely did not have as much of a voice as they do now. Um, But then now you have school, so you can totally go to, you know, DJ school. Now today, which I think is just absolutely incredible, is that um, DJing and music production forms um, I think it's 40 or 60%, no, 40% of the GCSE uh, music curriculum um, grade at, at, at studying music in, in school. So now the way that, um, yeah, it's amazing. Like that's a game changer. The way we consume music now, it's, 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 it's embraced that it's not just classical music at, when you learn, when you learn music um, at that level. It's, it's the fact that either of us can go on our iPhone or our Android and download a DJ app for free. And to some basic level, we can, we can mix some tunes and we can have something going in the background for our friends. Um, so yeah, I, I started it, you know, I, I then, it was much harder at that, you know, that age because um, A, I had to kind of sneak into clubs, but B, um, you know, there, there, there wasn't that level of what we have today. So um, I I guess, you know, my, my way into it was really becoming friends with the people that were the DJs. Um, and I was really lucky because two, two people in particular, they became my best friends. Um, and they just took me under their wings and I just observed their environment for three years straight. I didn't touch the decks. I just literally watched them play. I watched them do things and just do these incredible things. And, um, and then I just decided like aged 18, you know, I was, I did a gap year before I went to uni and, uh, I decided like, you know, I really want to try this. Um, I, I want to try and, and learn this um, because it's, yeah, it's just something I really want to do. And um, I looked up, there was a DJ school, at, you know, that existed and I, I went and I learned the fundamentals. Um, and then, uh, but then you really learn by doing because, you know, 40% really is the craft. You know, you could, you know, you, of course you need to know how to mix. Of course you need to know the technical aspects. But if you can't read energy, if you can't, you know, um, play songs that people uh, grab, like kind of are moved by, 
and remember you by then it doesn't matter if you can you can make the most flawless mix in the world like if the song is boring the song is boring so yeah that's kind of how I got into it and that's um and it never stopped because as soon as I left that school um that course I I was um I already had a uh like uh, offers to DJ in in Mykonos um I I started really you know kind of trying to get um, opportunities to play in London and I started getting residencies throughout my university um, time so building those residencies was like crucial because you know you're starting to build your fan base um, you know you have a place to play that people can come and hear what you do and it all just sort of it all just went from there so when I left university it, it just I was just flying like I, I didn't have to think like what what do I want to do where do I want to apply to get a job like I was just managing my DJ career already, like, by the time I left uni. Yeah. Cool. Interesting. I guess I'm curious, like, what the process looks like of getting new jobs, new gigs. Like, right now, I'd assume you're not doing anything with that. But in a normal time, are you every weekend going to an event and DJing? And how do you find those clients? Or are they seeking you out? Are you pretty well known? Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's it's a great question because, you know, I think it all begins with like knowing what you want, number one. Like, do you want to be Swedish House Mafia? You know, do you want that level of fame? Do you want that level of exposure? Um, because you have to be comfortable with the fact that even if you don't you like don't want that, even if you just walk into a room, I mean, just the very nature of you walking into a room and taking control of the sound system, yeah, people are going to judge you for, for it and people are going to have an opinion. Um, and you need to be, you need to know that like, uh, you know, that there is now people are so obsessed with like knowing what the person's like that you, social media is a part of this process. Um, it's very rare that you, you can be a DJ and truly succeed. Um, you know, in terms of like getting into that, into that level of playing in the best clubs in the world. Um, if you don't have a presence. And so I think for me, it was always like, well, I didn't really want to be um, at that level of Swedish House Mafia. I, I never wanted to sell out. Um, I play very underground music. You know, it's it's not for everyone. Um, but there's a big scene within it in that sense. Like, And it's actually amazing to see what's developed from it. Because when Swedish House Mafia put house music on the map to the world, and particularly in America, um, you know, all the subgenres started getting trickled down into, like, those parts of the world. Um, and so now, like, you could literally walk into, like, a store and it's it's just you wouldn't not hear house music I mean it's literally everywhere right so the career paths in it are really interesting because you know you could you have to also produce music I mean if you also mm -hmm. want that level of success you you have to produce music and that's a different skill set in itself and I like to compare that sometimes from like knowing how to drive an automatic and knowing how to drive a manual and oh I think funny yeah knowing how to drive an automatic <laughs> I know is DJ production is really a manual is a manual bit um, and it's so time intensive, you know, you, you need to devote, you need to know and accept that, like, if, if you really want to do this for the right reasons, and you really want to, like, hone your craft, y you need to, you need to know how to, like, make music, and you need to study that, and you need to do that for, like, at least one or two years, without even, like, like, out, without, like, putting that out there, because, because you need that time for yourself to, like, learn it, because as soon as you put it out there, then everyone's going to want to know, like, uh, you know they want you want you want, you want to get onto label you you have all these other pressures that you have to manage around it mm -hmm. and you don't have that beauty of time to just learn and absorb which is so important so yeah i think now am i doing anything um no like for sure you know there's no i mean it's it's a disaster here in the uk to be honest with you i mean 
already the club culture here was at serious threat. Um, it, I think in the last decade, 50% of clubs in the UK have shut down because of things like um, realtors and government. Oh, so, wow. Um, yeah, it's a crazy statistic. It's a really crazy statistic. Um, and so the pandemic has just obliterated. Uh, I clubs. bet, yeah. You know, we were one of the first to shut down and we're going to be one of the last to come out, you know, for sure. Um, so, you know, live streaming, obviously, that's where everyone's kind of like doing their thing now. But is there money in it? You know, not right now. Not unless you're at the very top at that, like, you know, David Guetta level. Um, it's 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 tough. So, um, yeah, we, we got but it one day it will come back because you can't stop you know, people from wanting to go out and have a good time. I mean, it's, it's been a part of our human society. It's so interesting. Another career that I just am completely outside of the world of, so I don't know much about, so that's really mm-hmm. fun to hear about. And then the last big topic I want to cover is that TED Talk. How did that opportunity come mm-hmm. to you? Yeah, for sure. Um, so, um, it was a yeah it was an interesting one um because i never really thought about it you know like like sometimes when it, like afterwards when i when it happened people were like oh my god like how did that happen like that's like you know i want to do that before i'm the age of 30 or whatever um and it was all a very organic and natural exper- um uh, uh opportunity um and it, it, i happened to go to luxembourg um for a gig and um there was a girl there was a lady there i was talking to because my best friend, um, she had organized the whole um, thing in, in Luxembourg for Women's Day. And this lady, she really wanted to talk to my best friend. So my best friend was, is quite sort of well-known in Luxembourg. And, and, you know, people kind of queuing up to talk to her and all this. So I was just like, I was just like, I felt bad for this lady. And I was like, okay, like I, didn't, I, I just started talking to her, like, you know. And, and she didn't tell me that she worked for TEDx. Like, it, she, she just told me that um, what she was doing, aside from that, was she was, she was uh, working for the, uh, for, for the government. Um, so it was really interesting. We were having a great chat anyway. And then she just got connected to me and, you know, she started sort of seeing me on social media and like just seeing some of the content I share. Um, and literally out of the blue, I got this email from her and she just said, you know, we, we, we have a TEDx coming up in Luxembourg in, a, in, in six weeks. Um, and we, we think we, we would love for you to, to do a talk. Would you be interested? And at first, I, I wasn't sure if this was a hoax. <laughs> I was yeah. Like, what? Um, is this for real? And um, but it, it wasn't. And she put me in touch, with, you know, with the main organizer, and we had a chat. And and that was it. It was like it was happening, and they and they just uh, and it, it, they they don't tell you, oh, you should speak about this. You know, you have to come up with like the the big idea, and and you that idea needs to be literally one sentence. Um, and they say that you know when people pitch to talk to Ted, like. It really has to be. They don't want the whole spiel. They just want literally one sentence. Really? Um, wow. Yeah. What was your yeah, one yeah, sentence? It's, um, how to rewire the brain from dyspraxia. Oh, cool. Um, so the topic in itself. I mean, that that idea didn't come to me until much later. Because because then you go through the whole emotion. Like, okay, wait. I've just been trusted with this platform. Yeah. I haven't had to actually p- pitch an idea. Well, but what is my idea going to be about? Plus. There's so much I want to talk about, and there's, you know, like, do I do I go on that stage as the motorsport person or the DJ? Like, which one? You know, am I talking about about my experiences? And then, and then I suddenly, and I hadn't really, to be honest, with you, I hadn't really been so public and vocal about dyspraxia up until my TED talk. It was just something I had, but because I never got therapy for it, because I never, like, I never had that, uh, you know, interaction beyond that one day with that educational psychologist. 
I, it was just something I just lived with and I never really went deep into like thinking about it was just like behind the, like somewhere in between my brain I was always just dealing with it and and, and getting better but like then I suddenly realised when I was thinking about it, like, hang on, this is actually the thing that could actually tie it all together because actually, like, I'm in two industries that really rely on coordination. Yeah, um, for real. And I've, you know, and I've managed to somehow to do well in it. Um, so how have I done that? And that's when it all just kind of started coming together. But it was an absolutely crazy experience because because I didn't get, um, you know, a lot of time to prepare and I and I so I already had work commitments and I was in six countries in those six weeks I was between Africa America Ibiza London I mean it was nuts and you can't just cancel those things you know there's your work commitments right and I had this huge event going on for Regents Racing as well that um it was massive like I, I and I was the you know managing the entire thing like it, it was all on me and I, I know I, I remember being in the DJ booth in Ibiza and I was literally like in between breaks, I was like answering as many emails and promoting as much as I could. And I just just doing so much. And this whole six weeks was just the biggest like journey of a lifetime. Um, And it was like literally climbing. I I knew I was standing like at the base of a very steep mountain when she told me like, you know, do you want to do it? Because I also had to think, do I really, am I, am I, am I, I don't want to, you also know you're going to put yourself on that platform. So you don't want to embarrass yourself because there have been, you know, many people who have gone on that platform who've been torn to shreds because ultimately they could also have the best speech in the world but then they go on that stage and they're they just everything freezes up and 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 that's it you, you can't turn back from that experience so what I started even realizing when I started doing research was that I started seeing crazy statistics like TED some TED speakers have of course had you know um, their speech written by professional writers some um, they say is like they, for every for, it's meant to be an 18 minute speech and for every minute people spend one hour just practicing that one minute of sentence and I was like just I was like oh my god I just don't have time I don't have the time I don't even like how am I even like going to write something that's such a high level you know of uh, uh, thought um, and yeah. so many different areas to cover um, and and dealing with jet lag and I trying to write this thing in, in on the plane to Dubai and it it wasn't happening you know like it was so tough um and it just um like parts of it were coming together but then the week before I literally just I just like I just like locked myself away and I just got it done I just wrote it and then it was like a mad dash to kind of get it you know um analyzed by the TED team I mean I'd I'd given them a basic structure like prior because they need to know that um they need to know like what are the three like four sort of main linking components you know but then it's really you know on you to kind of develop it but they do want to work with you like they they want this to be the best for you as well um so so yeah and then um that was it I I had to memorize it I think by the time that the whole speech actually got ironed out and everything I I had three or four days to memorize it on top of that I, I definitely threw myself in deep end because the talk happened to be in the Philharmonic Hall in Luxembourg and I was like, there's just no way I'm not doing a music performance if, if I'm allowed to. Like, I mean, I, I have to tie like, this is the best way to actually demonstrate, you know, what, what, how I've managed to overcome dyspraxia in a way. Um, so I also had another huge thing on my plate, which was like, you know, um, getting this music production ready for performance in a Philharmonic Hall. It, it, that was another, you know, whole thing in itself. Um so yeah, I got to Luxembourg, um, you know, not much sleep involved in those six weeks. Oh, I bet. Um, you know, it was <laughs> A nuts. lot of nerves too. A lot of nerves. Thank God my sister was with me. 
and she was my like superstar and all of that um but you know i met the guy who's gone on to become you know now a colleague of mine and a really good friend he was just he the guy who's organizing tedx in luxembourg he happens to be a public speaking coach oh wow i know i was really lucky um because i just had one hour with him before before my speech that was oh it. no like, way that's yeah quick. yeah that that's it because i mean if you lived in luxembourg and you would you know you had access to him and just to, to practice with it with him but i just got to luxembourg like the day before um and that mm. was it so i just had that one hour he's already stressed out because he's running this huge event so he's not like he can't just make more time for me like that's that's the window he has um but in that one hour i have to say he just transformed my speech and it was really like that was when it was like brutal like okay like it's it's long you know you there are too many because there's a music element to this as well you need to factor in that you have to take out five minutes of your speech mm. you, you know you can't yeah. have an 18 18 minutes of, of, of talk um if you want the song and i wanted the song to say um so he he was like just chop you know and it hurt it was like oh my god but i really need that part like otherwise how are people going to understand what it's about um but it actually ended up being the best thing but also it, it also was difficult because I what happens is that you 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 obviously have to memorize things so you're like um when he chops something it's really hard to like remember that you're not meant to say that and be natural in your delivery as well and then yeah so he was he he really helped like you know he did that and then the other thing that he really focused a lot on was uh body language because I mm. suppose what started happening in those six weeks was I was probably just freezing up inside like from not sleeping, from being in six different time zones, from having so much work stress. Like I was internally freezing up without realizing it. And then the day came and I, when I was saying the speech, like I wasn't really moving around. Um, and he had all these funny terminologies for these things. And he was, he was actually, he was like, you know, walk to the side of the stage, like walk from one side of the stage to another when you've, when you've made a, you know, a point. And to me in the beginning, that felt so unnatural because, and that's the beauty of Ted, you know, like you, the whole point of Ted is that you don't have uh, a speech in front of you. You don't have a lectern. Nothing can, ex nothing can, um, can cover up your body language and your movement. And that's how the authenticity gets relayed in such a big way as well. Um, and I, and I, it actually made so much sense because when I did walk, when I stopped, um, you know, it allowed people to digest what I said, but it also allowed my mind to just like, get into the next level of what was going to come next um in the speech so that was the experience and i i, I didn't sleep the night before i, I just couldn't i yeah. tried so hard I, I i tried so hard i just couldn't do it um so it was even more stressful because not having slept um and then being in there it was like it was i just after the speech i i went outside and i just like you know all these people wanted to talk to you and and all this and that and i just literally walked out of the hall and I just like, I just like passed out on the bench for a good 10 minutes and I just oh. closed my eyes <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I just let it all just absorb and uh, yeah, but it was the most amazing experience of my life. And, and it was really because of how much it pushed me. Um, I didn't even think I was capable of doing that at that point, six weeks before, like, I didn't know, I didn't think I could have done that. And lucky to say it, it all went really well. I mean, it's been picked up really well, uh, you know, it's it's uh it's definitely it's definitely out there and most importantly for me it was that people came up to me afterwards and you know since of course online that they actually think they they might have dyspraxia or it's helped them in their journey of dyspraxia and understanding it because there isn't that much resources out there um you know to deal with these things so so that was really really good and I, i'm part of all these forums online you know with um 
on Facebook of like, you know, these are uh, of dyspraxia and like a lot of parents who come on who, who, who don't know how to help their children. Cause it's particularly like, you know, during, during school, like you, you're a teenager, your emotions are just running high. Um, and, uh, it's been really, really cool to kind of just be a part of that community and like kind of give back and, and share like some of my experiences as well. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, sorry, that was a quite long winded, but, but no, you know, that's so cool. <laughs> what an incredible opportunity. And I have to say, I think you did a really great job. I see you did a good job with expressing yourself with your body language and everything. I thought it was really, really well put together. So that was, that's must've been so fun and, and all the responses that have come since. And going along those lines, if you, with, with how you talked about, you have gotten the responses from different people with dyspraxia or parents that have a child with dyspraxia, what would be a message that you have for someone with dyspraxia? If you could share one tip, one advice, or just an overall message for them. Absolutely. I think like, I think, you know, your emotions are something you're going to have to manage for the rest of your life. Like no matter who you are, but particularly with dyspraxia, there's so much going on and frustration when you can't do things. And I think that if you can understand and integrate meditation and yoga into your life every single day, it's going to be the most powerful thing you could do to help you on that journey. Powerful. Thank you for sharing all of this. Um, So let's get into the end of podcast questions. I enjoyed hearing your full story and getting to know you more and all that you're doing. It seems like you've got your hand in a lot of things. Thank you. Emma. Well, thank you so much for, for having me on the show. Yeah. So what is the best or most recent book that you've read? So I thought about this one because um, I think this book, I, I started reading it recently um, and it's called Performance at the Limit, um, Business Lessons for Motor Racing. Um, and it's written by three university professors. And I just, I really enjoyed reading the book because it goes into a really high detailed analysis um, of the principles you can take from motor racing and how you can apply it to your own sort of company. So I would really recommend that book. If, if any of what I've said is interested you and you want to know more, I think that's a fantastic book to, to, get, to get with. And who or what is illuminating in your life right now? Definitely. So I actually launched my podcast today. Um, oh, congrats. <laughs> thank you so much. Um, it's called Mission Makers. And we released three episodes, um, you know, as a sort of uh, as a sort of thing for like the first um, first week. And the first three guests I have, um, they're amazing in, in uh, amazing people. Um, but 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 one in particular um, is my best friend, Tessie, who I kind of talked about a little bit about Luxembourg and everything. And today I was kind of like listening back to her podcast because, you know, you do these conversations, you speak for an hour or whatever it is. I mean, I, I didn't sit there and go through all of the what I spoke about, you know, with like, you know, like I, I have a um, I have, I'm lucky to have like a you know team with me right now who's working on the podcast. Um, and I wanted them to come from that lens and say, let's just cut out this content, that content. Right. So I, I just didn't want to like hear back the conversation. Uh, and and uh, today I listened to the conversation and. I have to say, Tessie, you know, I'm always in awe of her, but she's a woman that she, she, she's a woman that has just, um, touched so many people's lives. Um, she was a princess of Luxembourg and people know her for that, but what they, what people are starting to realize and know and, and really love about her is 
is her relentless dedication to humanity. And she's been through a very, very tough um, separation from the royal family of Luxembourg. And a lot of people have judged her for that publicly and have criticized her. Um, and it's very easy to judge and criticize someone when you don't know them and you just see, you know, uh, you see a fairy tale life and you see it kind of falling apart. And in many ways, she, re she really reminds me of like Princess Diana and what she what she went through. Um, and knowing Tessie so well, um, just, you know, she, she, she's just so philanthropic and so like just the conversations she had with me on that show, on that episode were, were, were amazing um, insights into who she is a, as a person and, and, uh, and what she really cares about. Um, so she's really inspiring me. And, and she, she asked me a really interesting question once when I was on her podcast, which was that, um, who, who, who are your idols? Like, you know, who did you grow up idolizing? And it's actually a question I've thought about a lot because I've, as I've been on this journey of, you know, of music and motorsport, and of course, you know, particularly with music, you're, you're exposed to a lot of famous people. And, and, you, and when you actually meet those people, you know, you, you could have idolized them for ages, you know, like in your room or, you know, in your bedroom, you had a poster, mm -hmm. or, you know, 10, 10 years. And, and, and you're led to believe that that person is, is what they obviously have um, portrayed themselves as in the media. But when you actually meet some of those people and like I've just had some experiences where I'm just shocked, you know, at the person who I thought, you know, um, grew up I, and admiring is is not the values I close to, I hold to myself, like no freaking way. So when Tessie asked me that question, I realized that my idols are the people that are actually in my life who I know really, really well, who I know what their values and their behaviors are. Yeah, I like that. Um, yeah, whether that's, you know, your, your mom, your dad, your family or your best friend, um, you know, those, those are my, my heroes and those are the people that illuminate me. Oh, I love that. And I'll have to give your podcast a listen. Congrats on yeah, 100%. launching. That's so fun. Um, Thank you. What is an organization that you would like to illuminate? Well, because I haven't worked in Formula One yet, I have to say I, I would just absolutely at some point in my life love to work for Formula One. Like it would just be a dream. Not surprising. I love it. So <laughs> to finish it off, what is your one message to send to the world? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, we all have our limits. Nobody is perfect. We all have it. And this pandemic has, you know, has really woken up people to really be grateful for what, because if you have a roof, if you have food, you just have more than most people right now in the world. Um, and you know we've been this society has been so consumed about getting more getting excess we, like so many of of the world just hasn't thought about the fact that like 35 percent of our, our 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 like animals are 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 left in this world you know we we've destroyed this planet and i just think you know that is so something none of us can like shy away from anymore like every single decision every brand we purchase from every you know everything that we recycle everything we do is 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 going to be is going to shape whether this planet exists or not in the next decade, two decades, three decades from now. And you have to, you have to take that on your response. We all have a responsibility to it. Um, but I also think it's also a time for us now to really think about what is seeking us in our passions, what really truly fulfills us because we, we became this world that was so obsessed with globalization, becoming fast, doing everything, burning out, you know, and, and working for money and um but you know really what is it all about if at the end of the day you can't come home to a happy house what is it about what is the point you know um so what does success really mean to you how are you going to define that because money will only play a very small part into that you know so i think that's that's really my my closing sort of uh what i really want would like people to take from it 
All right, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to my conversation with Farah Nanji. If you want to find out more about what she's doing, you can find her website at dj-ninja.com. And that's where you can find links to her podcast, her speaking, about her DJ career, all that she's doing, as well as links to her social media accounts. And of course, you've got to go check out her podcast. That's the Mission Makers podcast, where she talks to people that are involved in music, motorsport, business, and other industries to lead inspiring conversations. And if you want to continue to follow along with all that the Illuminate podcast is doing, you can find us on Twitter at Illuminate underscore pod or on Instagram at the Illuminate podcast. We love to connect with you and hear your thoughts on the show. All right, everyone, that's all I have for this week. So thank you so much for tuning in and listening to my conversation with Farah. And I hope you have a great rest of your week.